chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. You can open up there. Reactions are everything in today's world, right? If you're on Facebook, you know this. Reactions are everything. I mean, companies determine how valuable an announcement, how important an announcement is based on what sort of reaction that announcement gets on social media, right? I mean, articles, you read a news article, even Christian blog posts or news articles are determined, you determine how valuable these articles, how important they are, and they're ranked by how many likes, how many shares, how many reactions they get on Facebook or on Twitter. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about with reactions on social media, and that's all right. I'd, I'd like to try to explain it to you, but it would sound really, really weird, so I won't try. On the internet, there are some people who write headlines just to try to get you to click on them because they want reactions. They're called clickbait. And they write the headlines in such a way that they'll get as many people as possible to just click on this particular headline. And I thought about reading some of those to you, but that would have been awful because they're bizarre and weird. And But that's the reality of the world. People want a reaction to what they're writing. The currency of the day is attention. People want attention, and people are willing to do almost anything to get attention, to get a reaction. And any sort of reaction is a good reaction in some ways. I mean, it gets you attention. It gets you popularity, even if it's negative popularity. Hey, if you have popularity, you can sell something with that. And so everybody needs a reaction and needs attention. Well, today... As we're in Mark, we're going to talk about attention. We're going to talk about reactions, but not the social media kind, obviously. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, you know that, and uh, today we're entering into a new section in the Gospel of Mark. You may have seen the sign outside or, or on the website, but uh, we're entering into a new series from Mark chapter 3 and verse 7 all the way into chapter 6, and the title of this series is taken from a story in Mark 4, where the disciples ask, who then is this? And that, I think that question really summarizes this whole section in the Gospel of Mark. And in the early chapters of Mark, we've seen Jesus begin his ministry in Galilee. And he's been preaching, and he's been healing, and he's been having discussions with the religious leaders. And he's calling people to repentance. He's announcing the coming of the kingdom. He's telling them that it has arrived. It's not fully here, but it's arrived. You need to repent. You need to turn to God and believe in his coming one. And then as we get into this section in Mark chapter 3, Mark is going to start describing various reactions to Jesus. He sort of laid the, the groundwork, and now people are starting to give attention, more and more attention to Jesus, and they're starting to react to him. And ultimately... I love this section because it culminates in chapter 4 as kind of the high point of this section with the story of the seed and the soil. The four different kinds of soil. I'm sure you've heard that parable before, but that is a significant block of teaching in the Gospel of Mark. And that section really helps us to understand these various reactions to the ministry of Jesus. And people are trying to answer the question, who then is this? They're 
they're giving various responses to that. And so in our section today, beginning this bigger series, Who Then Is This?, Mark sort of hits the reset button here as he's describing the life of Christ. And this portion of Scripture, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 3, this gives us a summary of what Jesus' ministry is like. And in this summary, he's going to describe this massive amount of attention that Jesus is receiving from all sorts of people. Uh, We saw a summary statement like this back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, talk about Jesus going out and proclaiming the kingdom and preaching. Well, that was a summary statement, and now Mark sort of circles back around and and gives us a, a description of what Christ's ministry was like day after day again. And this summary in chapter 3, the beginning here of chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, sort of identifies reactions to us of what people are thinking about Christ. And it it sort of sets the trajectory for this discussion of attention and reactions that we're going to have over the next few weeks. And we ended last time by saying you can't remain neutral in your position on Jesus Christ. I mean, that was true during this time, and it's certainly true today. When you see Christ unfolded by the Gospels, you can't sort of be noncommittal about it. You have to make an opinion one way or the other on who Jesus is. No one can be allowed to be Switzerland in this case, neutral. I'm not going to take a side on this. You have to take a side when it comes to Jesus Christ, and we'll see that as we continue through this section. But today in this portion... I want you to see two faulty reactions to the ministry of Jesus. All right, so two faulty reactions to the ministry of Jesus, and these reactions are going to serve as a warning to us. I think they're going to be very instructive to us as we continue to live out our faith and continue to grow in our belief of who Jesus is and our understanding of who he is. So two faulty reactions to the ministry of Jesus And the first one of these, these are epitomized by two different groups. The first one of these is the crowds. And this is a reaction of enthusiasm without knowledge. Enthusiasm without knowledge. So this passage here serves as sort of a a summary and a bridge passage. So it connects back to the previous section and it sort of brings you along to launch you into the next section of the book of Mark. The next chunk of the gospel. So we've just seen Jesus encounter multiple groups of religious leaders and different different people who are questioning his authority and asking him about things his disciples are doing that are at odds with the way they see the, the life lived under the Old Testament law. And these conflicts that we've just seen don't end particularly well. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6 here. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, the political leaders, against him, how to destroy him. So at that point, things are getting pretty serious, and Jesus isn't scared. He doesn't flee from them, but he does get out of the synagogue in Capernaum, and he withdraws to the Sea of Galilee, which is one of his favorite places, I think. Look at verse 7, beginning of it there. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, at this point, if you just read that phrase, you might be thinking, okay, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders are plotting against Jesus. He's scared. 
The people are annoyed with Jesus. It's sort of like the guy that has his 15 minutes of fame, you know, and and they're getting tired of it. And so they're annoyed with him. And so he sort of withdraws out to the sea to get away from everybody and to avoid the conflict that he's been experiencing. But that's not at all what happens. Look at the rest of verse 7 and verse 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him notice how many times it says great crowd here a great crowd followed him from galilee judea jerusalem idumea from beyond the jordan and from around tyre and sidon when the great crowd heard all that he was doing they came to him so we've seen jesus deal with large groups of people before right remember the the sabbath day when he healed peter's mother-in-law and all the people came to the house looking for him to heal all the local people capernaum there i mean we've seen big crowds before but this is an entirely different level when you think of this as mark just amping up the interest in christ's ministry here this is a great crowd Jesus hasn't seen anything like this yet in his ministry. His disciples certainly haven't. I mean, look where this crowd comes from. Look back in verse 7 there. All these different areas, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, all over the place. Now, most of you, as I read those, those names, are probably not up on your geography of the Middle East. Probably haven't looked at that necessarily this week. So I want to show you a map to show you there's the Sea of Galilee, and then I drew some arrows from these general regions where people are coming from, okay? So, and actually Tyre and Sidon are off the map there, up further to the north. So you can see people are coming from everywhere to Jesus. Some of these people are traveling what would have to be hundreds of miles to get to him, And they're coming to him. Look at the end of verse 8. Look at why they're coming to him. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I mean, they haven't, these people haven't experienced a healing yet. They've only heard about it. And so word is traveling very, very far about all these healings that are taking place. And so these people have to get there to see what's happening. And and think about what's going on here i mean these people aren't traveling these distances in an air-conditioned car they're not hopping on a train and if they're coming because jesus has been healing people then they're probably bringing their sick their disabled loved ones with them and so you've got people coming from jerusalem from idumea from tyre and sidon And they're probably carrying their loved ones with them. They're traveling over rough terrain, dangerous terrain. And they're doing all this because they think they have a shot at this loved one getting healed. And so they're coming all this way because they've heard about what Jesus is doing. So you can imagine the sort of environment that takes place when you've got people traveling hundreds of miles. They're trying to get to this guy they've heard is a healer. They think they're going to have their their loved one healed. They've carried them with them over this rough terrain. And so you can imagine what happens when they find Jesus near the Sea of Galilee. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus gets ready because he knows what's coming. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him 
I mean, you, you can just imagine this scene, and it gives us the picture of a crowd who is not organized. It's sort of, I don't know if you've ever seen those videos of a flock of birds sort of ebbing and moving, not really any direction to them. That's kind of how I picture this crowd. People are surging forward, and they're trying to get close to Jesus at all with the hope that just a touch from him will heal one of their loved ones. Basically, every person in this crowd is out for his own best interest. And you and I probably would be, too, if we had this opportunity. Later on in Mark 5, Jesus does heal a woman as she just touches his robe. And so that probably was going on at this point in his ministry. And people have heard that. And so they're trying to get access to him and they're trying to get close to him. And this is a massive crowd. And you can imagine how desperate you would be if you had a terminally ill loved one maybe on the verge of death, and you have the opportunity to have them healed, you would, you would run people over to get there, to try to get this loved one to this guy. And so Jesus anticipates this. He sets, tries to get out in a boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee so the crowd doesn't shove him into the sea and crush him and his disciples. It's a, it's a crazy scene. Sometimes you get these, these pictures from children's books of Jesus on this hillside teaching sheep and you know, little children over there. I guess he's probably not teaching the sheep, but there are sheep on the hillside. And he's teaching on this gently sloping hill and instructing them very wisely. And I, I just don't think that's what his ministry was like. I mean, these people are trying to just grab a hold of his, his robe and heal their loved ones. It is madness and craziness here. And when you see how the crowd is reacting to Jesus here, I want you to think of the crowd in the book of Mark as sort of like a minor character, almost like a single entity. And I, I think that's the way Mark is writing about the crowd here. If you're thinking about it literarily, the crowd becomes a character in this story. And as you see how the various crowds react to Jesus, they surround him during his ministry. There's a couple of characteristics that sort of rise to the surface concerning the crowds here. First of all, the crowds are absolutely enamored with Jesus. And rightfully so. He's a miracle worker. We always see Jesus with a crowd nearby. I mean, there's people constantly following him and he has to sort of steal away from them in the early morning to get a few minutes alone with his father. And then people are coming after him to try to find him. The crowds love him, but they love him for his miracles. That's why they're interested in him. And they love him because of the spectacle of what is going on and what they're going to see. They're amazed by Jesus. And, you know, they, they will say things like, we've never seen anything like this. But the second thing you need to understand about the crowds, they're enamored by Jesus. But don't confuse or misdiagnose that interest and that amazement with genuine understanding of who Jesus is. The crowd's amazement at Jesus is not based on a true knowledge of who he is. Certainly not at this point. They're enthusiastic about Christ, but it's not with a real understanding of his person and his work. I mean, you could see back here in verse, uh, verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I mean, they hear the miracles. They're looking to have their loved ones healed. They're interested 
in having their loved ones healed. And that's why they come to him. They're not coming to him and submitting to his proclamation of the kingdom and repenting and understanding what he is all about in his ministry. In many ways, the crowd, it's like a group of gawkers who are, who are watching something fascinating take place. And they just can't draw their attention away from it. And they want to see what's going on. And they're going to use this miracle worker for their own ends in many ways. And so they aren't grasping his true identity. And that's why this first faulty reaction is enthusiasm without knowledge. They don't really understand Jesus. Now, I think this is pretty helpful for you and I as we think about our reactions to Jesus as we see him in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, we want to react to Jesus with enthusiasm, right? I mean, when you see the crowds that are amazed at what he's doing, we want to be amazed by Jesus Christ and by what we see of him here. But the difference is that our enthusiasm has to be grounded in his true identity. It has to be grounded in solid biblical doctrine. That's where our enthusiasm has to be grounded. Now, some people probably hear the word doctrine and they think, oh man, this is about to get boring. (laughs) The pastor went to seminary and he's going to talk about doctrine and it's kind of stale. And some people, maybe none of you have that reaction, but people do have that reaction at times. And I'll be the first to admit that at times discussions of doctrine are divorced from the realities of daily life. It's sort of this abstract knowledge-based discussion that doesn't make a connection to your daily life, or at least the teacher doesn't try to show you how it works itself out in daily life. But you can't have a genuine Christian life and genuine faith and real salvation without a very clear, explicit connection to the truths of the Bible to the doctrines, to the unfolding of the person and work of Jesus Christ as he's revealed in Scripture. You have to understand what the Bible teaches about sin, about judgment, about God, about Christ, the Holy Spirit. If you think you're going to build a Christian life on enthusiasm, it's thinking it's like thinking that you're going to build a boat with newspapers. You might have a nicely designed boat, but it's never going to float And you certainly aren't going to be able to carry any people along in that boat and help them to get anywhere. And that's the problem with the enthusiasm of the crowd here. It's a wonderful opportunity for Jesus to preach because he's got all these people around him, but they aren't really listening in many ways to what he's saying. And they're after the miracles, not after the teaching. And the enthusiasm is not tethered to the reality of who Christ is. And you can see that because the enthusiasm goes away when Jesus is arrested and when he's killed. There's not great people around him when Judas comes with a a group of soldiers and takes him away. And if you want your faith to sustain you through the difficulties of life, then it has to be built on the rock-solid foundation of doctrinal truths of the clear teaching of scripture precise and it can't just be emotional enthusiasm one author who i love dorothy sayers said this about doctrine we are constantly 
We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man, and the dogma is the drama. In other words, I think what she's saying here is that we think doctrine is boring because we don't rightly understand it. We don't have a real grasp on what doctrine is. Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture, is a story about a man, Jesus Christ, who is at the very center of that story. And the doctrine we have must tell the story of Jesus. And without the story of him, you only have raw enthusiasm unmoored from reality. It has to be grounded in the truths of Scripture for it to be helpful, for it to be saving faith. The sort of emotion that the crowds have here is like an electrical wire that's been cut loose. is just waving out there on the ground. It really doesn't have a solid purpose. And it can actually make things quite difficult for you in life. If, you're, if your faith is not tethered to the reality of doctrine. And so... I think that's instructive for us. And the crowds were enthusiastic, and they needed to think rightly about Jesus. I mean, they needed to follow through on his teaching and listen to him and understand exactly what he was teaching about the kingdom, about repentance, about faith. And they needed to respond appropriately. That's our first faulty reaction. But second, here, in this summary of Christ's ministry, we find a group that is responding to Jesus with absolute doctrinal precision. They get it. They understand. They are able to formulate exactly who Jesus is down to the T. They understand it. They know these truths. But they're missing something else entirely. Enthusiasm without knowledge is the crowds, and then knowledge without faith is the demons here. So we're getting a summary of Christ's ministry here. He's dealing with these crowds. This is a very consistent part of his ministry. These great crowds are coming to him. They're growing in size and apparently in enthusiasm and passion to try to get to him. But as he deals with these crowds, amongst the people, there are those who have been impacted by demons, who are possessed by demons. And these demons will have a reaction to Jesus and his ministry as person as well. Look at the way verse 11 states this. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him. Now, the Greek tense there tells us that this is something that was happening on an ongoing basis. And you can see the way he phrased it. But whenever. It's like this was happening regularly that Jesus was coming in contact with those who had been possessed by a demon. And whenever that was happening, notice how the demons respond when they encounter Jesus. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, you are the son of God. I think it's interesting here. The crowds know who Jesus is and they press around him to try to touch him and try to grab him. The demons know exactly who he is and what do they do? They fall before him. That's the appropriate response. They get it right in that instance, don't they? 
They have the exact same take on Jesus as God the Father does, don't they? If you go back to Mark chapter 1, what does God the Father say about Christ at his baptism? This is my beloved son. He knows who he is, and the demons know exactly who Jesus is. You are the son of God. So what's the issue here? The crowds don't rightly grasp Jesus' identity, but the demons have it exactly right. They bow in his presence. So what's the problem here? Well, knowledge of the truth does not equal salvation. It's not the same thing. Having the right opinion of who Jesus is doesn't mean that you are regenerate. It doesn't mean you've, you've come to Christ and that his work has applied to you. It's a careful balance here. Christianity requires doctrinal precision and knowledge. We have to know and believe the right things about Jesus. But Christianity is not to be equated with the right doctrinal notions in your head. It's not just being to say, well, of course, Jesus is the son of God. That's not it. That's not what Christianity is in its heart. Christianity goes far beyond mental assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And if that's where it has stopped for you, that is not sufficient to spend eternity with God. What does Jesus say as he's proclaiming the kingdom? What does he tell people? Repent and believe in the good news of God. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. When you make a cake... You have to have the right ingredients. But having the right ingredients is not equal having a cake. You can know which ingredients you need. You can have them all right there. And you can have them set out on the counter very beautifully. You can have doctrinal formulations set out on the counter very beautifully for everyone to admire and see. But having all of that out there does not equal real, genuine relationship with God. It doesn't equal saving faith. Now, we have to be careful here to understand some things about what saving faith is and what saving faith isn't. All right. First of of all, saving faith is not faith is not optimism. Okay, it's not faith when someone says, man, I hope the Tigers win the World Series this year. Okay, that is optimism. Okay, now it might be foolish optimism. But it's, it's just optimism. It's, it's a casting out this hope that's not based in any sort of, of reality or truth. Faith does not mean a positive outlook. That's what the world will tell you faith is. But that's not what true faith is. It's not just a positive outlook on life. Oh, my faith is so helpful to me because it helps me to see the positive in everything. Well, that's not what genuine faith is here. In the biblical sense, faith is also not just intellectual assent to these ideas, to these propositions, to these truths. Faith is not just belief that Jesus is the Son of God. I think I have the verse up here, but James 2.19 should be ringing in your mind. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And they believe to the point where they shudder over it. Just like these demons here, they fall down before Jesus because they know exactly who he is. 
So there is a belief that is mental assent. It's laying doctrines out and affirming those doctrines mentally. The demons have belief about Jesus. The consistent call of the New Testament is to have faith in Jesus. And those are two entirely different things. What's the difference? Faith in Jesus means a confident trust of your soul to his person. It means a commitment of your heart and your life to his care. I mean, think of saving faith as you are throwing yourself on his mercy because you have no other option. It's not just checking off a box doctrinally. I know I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sins and I have no other choice. You have to do this, Jesus. This is it. This is my shot at this. One author, J.I. Packer, said that saving faith is both credence, which means doctrinal truths that you understand. It's a set of beliefs that you have and it's credence and it's commitment. It goes beyond what the demons are doing here. And it says the story that I assent to mentally is real and that impacts my daily life and it changes the way I function in my job and in my marriage and in my personal holiness. Saving faith means a commitment of the soul to that story, to those doctrinal truths that are there. Think of it like this. I got this illustration from. And I think it's fantastic. If you are drowning and a boat pulls up next to you and a man reaches out to save you, faith does not stop at just seeing the boat and knowing that a man is there to save you. That's mental assent. And that's not saving faith. You may be 100% convinced that that man is there to save you. And you see him there and you know, he's pulling the life preserver out. You know, he's there, but that's not saving faith. You will not be saved without the commitment of your soul to that truth. You know, he's there and you throw yourself on his mercy. Help me. I'm, I'm going to go down. I'm going under without you. It's the appropriating of the facts to my situation. Into my life. Faith. Saving faith is when you grasp the person's hand. It's a person's willingness to act on the facts as they are. Here's the danger in talking about saving faith, okay? All right, particularly those of you that are younger, if you've been raised in a Christian home, maybe you made a profession of faith at a young age. Sometimes believers will wonder whether I had the right kind of faith or not. I mean, I I experienced this with college students in Virginia so often. They would come to me and say, I don't know if I if I did it right when I was six or seven. I don't know if I I prayed the right things. I'm not sure if my faith was genuine. I'm not sure if it was earnest enough. So I don't know. I mean, I'm lacking assurance here. So what do I do with this? And that can become a burden for people. I mean, it it becomes a terrible, terrible weight 
when you have to turn yourself inward and analyze whether you had the right kind of faith or not. But here's the thing with that sort of looking inward at yourself. That misses the essence of true faith. True faith doesn't look at itself. I think the best summary of true faith is found in Mark chapter 9, and I'll put it on the screen for you. We'll get to this probably in a few months, but I love this story in Mark. There's this father whose son has been possessed by a demon since he was a child. Now put yourself in that situation. And this guy comes to Jesus, and he obviously wants Jesus to heal his son, and he is desperate for Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. All right? All things are possible for the one who believes. And this man looks at his own faith and says, I, I'm not confident in my faith. I don't know if I believe rightly, if I'm doing this right. Jesus And what does the guy say to Jesus? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love that. Instead of turning inward and thinking about himself, what does he do? He knows he's not perfect. He knows his faith isn't sufficient. He he knows there's no way he can figure out if his faith is sufficient. And so instead, he looks to the one who is the object of faith, and he cries out to him in mercy. And he says, I believe. I'm trying. You've got to help me. And that, I think, is the essence of true faith. It turns outward from self to the object of faith and continues to look at the object of faith. And I think the irony of this man's request here is that by making this request, he's showing that he really does have genuine faith. This request is a request of genuine faith. This is an act of faith. And there's a reason that Christ's proclamation of the kingdom is paired, has repentance and faith paired together. And the reason for that is because faith is looking to the object and repentance is saying, I can't do this on my own. I am sinful. I want to turn from my sins, but I'm not sufficient to do that. I need you to help me there. Repentance is turning from self-trust and self-recognition and facing Christ. Let me quote J.I. Packer here. True faith springs from real self-despair. And involves a complete abandoning of trust in one's own morality or religion or character to commend one to God. And I fear that so many people in churches are trusting their morality and their religion and their character to commend them to God. Rather than this desperate, self-despairing casting of myself on Jesus and saying, If you don't save me, I'm going to spend eternity in hell because I have no other option. This is it. Help my unbelief because I can't do this on my own. That's the essence of true faith. And that's why we talk about Jesus so much on Sundays. How do you grow in faith? Well, it's not by looking at yourself to see if you have the right kind of faith. 
What does Galatians 2.20 say? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For your faith to grow, you have to look at Christ consistently. I mean, it makes so much sense. That's how this Christian life thing works. It's why we're preaching through the gospel of Mark. It's to turn our gaze outward from self to him over and over again. We don't want to sit here on Sundays and figure out if we're doing the right things all the time. Figure out if we're believing the right way. We just want to see Jesus. And then the heart that's been saved and regenerated will respond to that in faith. And as Christ is held up, the unregenerate heart, as the spirit works on that, God will draw that person and give them light and life. And they'll be able to see the beauty of Christ. And the Christian life is to continue to gaze on the glory of Christ. Like the sunrise, you have to daily turn yourself, turn from self to Jesus every day. And it is is effort and it is work, but it is worth it. That's what the demons didn't have. They had knowledge, but they didn't have saving faith. They didn't have repentance and faith in the Son of God, but they did have doctrinal formulation. They know Jesus is God, but they hadn't turned from themselves in despair over their sinfulness and turned to face the one who could deal with their sinfulness. And it's for that reason that the demons are unreliable witnesses. Look at verse 12. Jesus silences them. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus doesn't want the demons to be the ones to divulge who he is to be telling people that he's the son of God. He doesn't want them to be the ones. But the other thing here is that why does Jesus silence them? Because he knows that his full work is not yet complete. And he doesn't want people only relying on him as a miracle worker. He knows that one major piece of his ministry is missing. And he knows that the piece that is missing is his death and his resurrection and his atonement for sin. And if you and I only view Jesus as the son of God, rightly view him as the son of God, but we're lacking the commitment of ourselves to his death for our sins on our behalf, if we're lacking that, then we really don't have eternal life. Jesus is not a political revolutionary. He's not simply a miracle worker. In the Gospel of Mark, he's presented as the Son of God who came to die. And so we believe the doctrinal truths about him, and then we throw ourselves on his sacrificial death for us. And we beg for that to be applied to our account. Without understanding Jesus and his death, you can't have the right knowledge of him, and ultimately you can't throw yourself on him in desperate faith that longs for the atonement to be applied to me and my sin. And so you need both of those. And that's why Jesus silences the demons here. So this morning, let me end by saying, let's pursue faith that is built on good doctrine. I mean, I want to teach the Bible clearly. And I want us to learn to read our Bibles with good doctrinal eyes. I want us to to passionately pursue knowing the right things. But as we're doing that, 
Let's not let it be doctrinal formulations, knowledge without faith. And faith that commits itself to Christ on an ongoing basis and knows that this doctrinal formulation here is absolutely necessary for my life today and my life this week. I need who Jesus is tomorrow morning when I wake up. When all the thoughts rush into my head and I feel the guilt over my sin, I need the truths about Christ and I need to turn to him in faith. That's what, that's what this passage, I think, calls us to. So let your life this week be characterized by a desperate, outward-looking, sin-hating gaze on Jesus Christ. That's where we need to be. And he's worth it. Every gaze at him is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are weak, Lord. We don't, we don't turn to you in faith and in trust as we should. But Lord, even in our failure, you, you came to die for that failure. You came to save us from that, Father. You sent your Son to do that for us, Lord Jesus. Or Father, you sent your Son, Lord Jesus, to do that for us. And we are eternally grateful for that. And so I pray now, even this morning, this week, as we are prone to turn inward and try to examine our own faith and our own works, our own morality, we're trying to make those things commend us to you. We ask that you would give us the faith as a gift, like Ephesians 2 said, to be able to turn and look at you and gaze upon you and rest in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that turns our attention toward him. Work in us now, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.